Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another in being one another. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaking in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens in this way. You will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else, for each person will have to carry his own load. Praise be to God. You ever heard someone say, you're perfect just the way you are? Such a sweet sounding thing to say. Oh, I love you. You're perfect just the way you are. But if you've ever been honest with yourself, you know you are not perfect just the way you are. I love you. I love me. I love my family. We ain't perfect just the way we are. If there is an ounce of humility in us, we got to recognize that we're not perfect just the way we are. That in fact, there are problems with me. There are issues within me. I hold grudges. I'm mean sometimes. I was mean yesterday. I had a hard time getting outside the house. I had a hard time leaving the house when we were supposed to. And we were 20 minutes late leaving the house. And I had told the kids for hours, we are leaving at this time. And that time came and what happened? They weren't ready to go. And was daddy very nice about that? No, no, daddy was not. Five minutes before we left, I told my son, we're leaving in five minutes. Five minutes later, his shoes, which were previously on his feet, are now off. Now, wait a minute. I told you five minutes ago, we're leaving. Why'd you take your shoes off? We're not perfect just the way we are. None of us is. That's part of what makes us human. In fact, that's a big part of what makes us human. We're not perfect the way we are. No one is. It's much kinder, it's much truer, it's much more real to say, I love you just as you are with all of your imperfections. In fact, if you're perfect the way you are and I love you, then my love is not really that great. 
Ever thought about this? If you're absolutely perfect the way you are, then there's nothing that challenges me about you. And so my love for you is, is it flows very easily. It flows very naturally. There's, there's no challenge to my love. So my love is not actually that strong for you. Jesus made this point. He said, if you ask your parent for a good thing, will the parent hold it back? Well, God loves you so much that he's not going to give you any bad thing. God loves you even in your brokenness and in your sinfulness. That's the beauty of love. The beauty of love is that I love you despite the fact that you're not perfect. Despite the fact that you're, you're imperfect, that, that being with you sometimes grates on me. Loving people is inconvenient. Loving people is painful. Loving people causes the most hurt of anything that we do. We've got a lot of people in our world who, who won't be vulnerable with other people anymore because they've been hurt by their love for them. They've loved people and they've opened up to them and then they have been hurt by them and so they've just decided I'm not going to love anymore because love leads to nothing but pain for me because we're not perfect the way we are. Because if we're honest with ourselves and we have even an ounce of humility, we must admit that there's some brokenness in me. There's a lot of good in me. I'm still created in the image of God. I am still worthy of dignity. I am still worthy of love, but I am also broken in so many ways. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus beautiful. This is what makes our God beautiful because our God looks upon a broken people and says, I love you. Despite what you've done to me, despite the way you spit in my face, despite the way you treat the other people that I made for you to love, despite your brokenness, I love you. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus allowed all of that brokenness in us to break his body. He became broken for us because of our own brokenness. So you see, God from the very beginning has always been a God of grace and truth. A lot of Christians out there believe that something changed. They wouldn't say this. They would say, yes, God is the same yesterday and forever. And, but then you, get, you drill down and you ask them, and they would, they would say, yeah, the God of the Old Testament's a little different from the God of the New. The God, the God of the Old Testament's a little bit different from Jesus. When I read the Old Testament, I don't see what I see in Jesus in the New. And yet, from the very beginning... God showed us that God was a God of grace and truth. That grace has been central to God's character forever. It's not something that just came up in Jesus. And this shows most profoundly in Exodus chapter 34. Now, I know all y'all have gone and read Exodus before. Uh, if you haven't, actually, you should, because Exodus is a really exciting story. Um, Exodus is called Exodus because it is the story of God's people leaving slavery in Egypt. That's the Exodus. But the Exodus is really the story of the creation of the nation of Israel. You see, God created people and, and uh, generations came and generations went. And then eventually God says, I need to call it a people for myself. And so he calls this guy named Abraham, Abram at the time, and says, Abram, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to be the father of many, many peoples. And so God makes this promise to Abram, renames him Abraham, and then God has a relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the sons of Abraham, and 
And he calls them out to be the fathers of this great nation that he's going to make. But then a famine comes in the land where Abram's children live, where Jacob lives. And Jacob's children are forced to go to Egypt to get the grain that they need, to get the food that they need. And when they go to Egypt, they they move down to Egypt, and one of Jacob's sons becomes a a high-ranking official who's in charge of distributing food for everybody affected by the famine. And so for a while, the people of God, the children of Abraham, live in Egypt, and they prosper, and they're doing very well. But over the course of 400 years, they move from being an honored people, the children of Jacob, to being slaves, to being marked out. The Egyptians look at them and say, you're different from us. You're not us. And they enslave the Hebrew people, the children of Abraham. And so for 400 years, the children of Abraham, the Hebrew people, live in slavery in Egypt until God calls up a guy named Moses. Moses, who doesn't know he's a Hebrew and who occupies an equally equally powerful place to his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And he is moved to lead the people out of Egypt. And these Hebrew people who have been living in Egypt, they only know so much about their God. They don't have scriptures. They only have the occasional prophet who will speak to them. They, they don't They don't know much about their God. They know they have a shared identity in their ethnicity. And they know that their shared identity gives them access to this God who called out their father Abraham. But they really know very little about him. So in the Exodus, as Moses is called up by Yahweh, by the God of the Hebrews, by the creator God, as Moses is called up to lead the people out of Egypt, he's got to teach them about who their God is all while Moses himself is learning about the character of God. You see, sometimes we have this imagination that like the Jewish people in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, they just, they knew God from the very beginning. And they always had this this deep knowledge of God from the very beginning, but they had to get to know him just like we do. They started with nothing and had to learn about their God as God revealed himself. Only we're starting way ahead of them because we've got the scriptures. They've got nothing. They've got a prophet to tell them who God is. And so as Moses is leading the people out of Egypt and to the promised land that God is giving them to be their own, and he's forming this nation of people, God is teaching them about his character. He's teaching them who he is. The first five books of the Bible are written during this time, we think. And it teaches about the character of God. And the pinnacle of that revelation of God, the pinnacle of God's self-revealing to his people comes in Exodus chapter 34. Moses goes up onto the mountain and he's meeting with God. And God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments that will form the basis of the law of God's people. And God is talking to Moses and Moses is getting to know his God, understanding the character of his God. And this is what God says in Exodus chapter 34. Verse 5, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, that is, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, oftentimes when we confess these verses, we confess the first part and we leave out the second part because we don't like the judgment part. We like the, I'll be gracious to a thousand generations. But we have to have that second part. You have to have the judgment part of it. But even in God's self-revelation here, we read the judgment piece. We read the, I will punish to the third and fourth generation. And we think, good night, God. What is wrong with you? Like, you're going to visit the sins of the grandparents upon the grandchildren? Like, you're, the grandchildren are going to face the consequences of their grandparents' sin? And in an individualistic world like we live in, that doesn't make any sense. You're responsible for your own sin. It shouldn't have consequences for your children and for their children. But listen to this. Listen to what God says of the first. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, God says, I will give faithful love, mercy, and forgiveness to how many generations? A thousand. And I will visit the sin of the grandparents upon the grandchildren. So I'm going to hold account for only three or four generations, but I'm going to be faithful and forgiving to a thousand generations. Do you see the the difference there, the the distance between God's mercy in forgiving a thousand generations, being faithful of for a thousand generations, and the truth that God is holding and saying, "I'm I'm going to visit the consequences of sin upon three and four generations. There's a huge gap there, right? Because let me let you in on a secret. Mercy is more natural to God's character than judgment. Mercy is where God wants to dwell. Grace is where God wants to dwell. But God is a God of truth and of justice, and therefore he must bring judgment, even when he would rather not. We read about this with Jesus. Jesus looks out at the city of Chorazin. And he weeps over them and says, how I long to gather you in, but you've rejected me. He weeps over the judgment over people's sin. God's heart is broken over judgment for sin, but God's heart delights in showing mercy. But God is a God of grace and truth. Without the second part, without the the he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Without that, God merely becomes permissive. If, God, if we stop at verse 5 or verse 6 and we read that God shows faithful love to a thousand generations and is entirely merciful and is entirely gracious and will never hold us accountable for our sin, God is merely a permissive parent. And we've seen the children of permissive parents, right? We've seen what happens when you let children go their own way with no correction, with no guidance, with no guardrails. We, we, you know what happens when we're left to our own devices with no standards. And so without God's judgment, we're left to our own devices and we self-destruct. If God leaves us in our sin, if he never judges sin, if God never holds us to any kind of standard, we will self-destruct. That is the natural state of humanity in our sinfulness because we're turned in on ourselves. We do what we want for ourselves. We seek our own good, which ultimately isn't a good at all. 
rather than seeking the good of others. And so God has to temper in these verses, he has to temper his mercy with judgment so that God is one who loves us by holding us to a standard. So that God is one who loves us by saying, no, there's a better way to live. There's a better way than me leaving you to your own devices. So from the very beginning, God shows himself to be a God of grace and of truth, forgiving to a thousand generations, but holding us accountable to the third and fourth generation, providing a standard by which to live, a truth by which to live, while also forgiving us when we break that truth. Also making atonement for our sin. This is the character of our God. It has always been that way. And you may say, well, yeah, but that's God of the Old Testament. Like, now we're under Jesus. Now we have absolute forgiveness. Everything is always forgiven. And so I don't have a standard anymore. I don't have to live according to any particular standard because I'm forgiven by Jesus whenever I mess up. And therefore, I'm free. And yes, you are free. But that doesn't mean there isn't a standard. It's the very grace of God that calls us to live according to God's standard. It's the very grace of God that equips us to live according to God's standard. And we see that play out here in Galatians. The beauty of this book of Galatians, and we went through this a couple of years ago, the beauty of the book of Galatians is it's all about the freedom of the Christian. It's all about the freedom that we have in Christ, that we're not held to some legal standard by which we have to perform for God in order to be accepted. But Galatians also points us to the standard God wants us to live up to. He points us to Jesus as our standard of holiness, as the one who calls us and shows us how to live. And so we go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So the Apostle Paul here is saying, look, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given God's Spirit. And God's Spirit motivates you to live as Jesus. God's Spirit empowers and motivates you to live the way that Christ wants you to live. And that spirit within you, that spirit of God within you, it is sickened by all of the ways that the world would tempt you to live. By all the ways that your heart in its natural state would want to go, selfish ambition and immorality and harming other people, all of those things sicken the spirit of God. And the spirit is opposed to them. And so he's saying, look, if you're in Christ, God has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to live like Jesus. And then he gives us examples. He doesn't just leave us hanging there. So he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Just in case that list wasn't comprehensive enough, he just adds anything like this is off limits. The spirit of God will not lead you to live this way. But naturally, you'll want to live in this way. And there's no one who can look at this list and really understand what this list is saying and exclude themselves from it. There's there's no one who should be able to look at this list and go, yeah, it doesn't really apply to me. 
I mean, I wasn't really promiscuous. I was never really into porn. I wasn't like, I never defrauded people. I didn't murder anybody. But have you been jealous? Have you lived in envy? I mean, our whole economy is built on envy. So yes, that's a blanket truth. Have you ever had a selfish ambition? You ever counted yourself as part of a faction that excludes other people? You ever caused disunity anywhere? By your actions or by your words? You ever caused dissension? You ever caroused? Hey, that's like an old town, old-timey word. Like, I was just out carousing this weekend. You know? I don't know how many of you have caroused recently, but we can't read this list and exclude ourselves from it. In fact, reading this list and excluding ourselves from it just turns us into legalists. It makes us holier than thou, better than you Christian jerks. But that's not who we are, right? We, we read this list and we, it's supposed to be a mirror for us. This is me apart from Jesus. This is me apart from the Spirit of God. This is how my flesh is tempted to live. I am tempted toward these things. You ever worshipped an idol? Now, a lot of you are going to go, like, I never bowed down to any golden thing, so no. Like, I don't have a golden calf. I don't have a little Buddha in my house. Like, I've never worshipped an idol. And yet you've pursued things with more zeal and vigor than you've pursued God. Maybe you've pursued your job or your ambition. Maybe you've pursued your family life to the exclusion of the community of Christ. Maybe you've allowed your kid's sports schedule to keep you away from your brothers and sisters in the church. Maybe you've, maybe you've pursued other things than God. Anytime we put anything in the place that God is supposed to have in our lives, anything we've pursued something with more zeal than we've pursued God, we've made an idol of it. I've got idols I need to smash in my life right now. Every single one of us is counted in this list of the works of the flesh. It's where we all are. And we only find freedom in Christ when we can admit that. If we think we're good enough, we don't need Jesus, and the gospel doesn't apply to us. The good news is founded on the notion that every single one of us is tempted away from God. The good news of Jesus is founded on the notion that every single one of us is a sinner separated from God and under his judgment. That's where we are, and it's only when we admit that, that we are in a place to receive the grace of God, to receive the love of Jesus. It's only when we admit that we are not perfect just the way we are that we can receive the true love of our brothers and sisters and our parents and our cousins and our neighbors. Because then their love has something to overcome. And we know that it's true. It's only when we admit, I am sinful I am tempted away from you, God. I don't want your standard. I want these other things that make my body feel good. It's only when we admit that that we're in a place to receive all of the love and grace that God has to give. It's only admitting that we live under judgment that we can be free from that judgment. And that's where this passage begins, with this indictment of me. This mirror that holds up and says, Brandon, you are not as good as you think you are. You are not perfect just the way you are. In fact, in and of yourself, you are living under God's judgment. Just as he said back in Exodus 34. But here comes the good news. 
We're coming up on it. Don't give up yet. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so Paul is saying there's a better way. All of those lists of things, that mirror I just held up to you, that's not how you have to live. But if you're in Christ, if you have the Spirit of God living within you, this is what he's empowering you to do. This is how he's working in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I love the contrast here between work and fruit. In the first part, in the first list, Paul calls them the works of the flesh. These are the things you do, the things you choose, the, the work that you do. In the second one, he says these are the fruit of the Spirit. There's only so much work you can do to put into growing fruit. Most of it is the work of nature. So what God, when Paul says these are the fruit of the Spirit, what he's saying is there's only so much you can do to cultivate this. This is the work of God's Spirit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that the Spirit births in you, that God grows within you. And there's only so much you can do. These are not works that you work into. These are things that God develops within you through his presence, through his spirit. And who doesn't want this? I mean, you could say maybe there's someone in the world who doesn't want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe there's somebody in the world who doesn't want that. They're probably a sociopath. I don't know a single person who would say, ah, I don't know about that. Love? Like patience? I actually enjoy being impatient. Okay, I enjoy the feeling of anger and frustration sometimes. It gives me a little high. It gives me a little adrenaline rush. So I can't say I always want patience, but I do want patience. I want to want patience really more than anything. And so I'm hoping that the Spirit will produce that within me, right? I, I'm, I'm looking for that fruit in my life because I recognize that I'm not there yet. So this is, this is the alternative way of life that, that Paul is telling us. The Spirit of God leads us into this alternative way of life so that our lives are marked not by those works of the flesh, but by that fruit of the Spirit. It's also interesting here that fruit is singular. It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. In Greek, the word fruit is singular and then has all of these things together. These things come together. They're not individual character traits that you need to work on. This is the singular fruit that the Spirit works in the life of the person who's trying to follow Jesus because this is what marks out Jesus' life. Now, he ends this portion right here by saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, and then he goes on to tell us how to treat one another. You see, Paul's just laid out this list of things that mark out the flesh, those who live in the flesh, those who long for the things of the world, those who want to just scratch their own natural itches. And then he's laid out this list of fruit of the Spirit. And it would be really easy, as people in the church, to look at one another and go, okay, well, you're living by the flesh and you're living by the Spirit. So I like you and I don't like you. 
you're doing this thing over here, and that's not okay. And it'd be easy to judge one another and put one another down. It would be easy to look at our lives and go, yeah, you're spiritual and you're not. You're holy and you're not. And count ourselves, of course, always among the holy and spiritual. It would be super easy to do that. And all too often in the church, that's what happens. That's what has happened over and over and over again. If you've been in the church, the big C, capital C church, most of your life or for any long period of time, you have met self-righteous, arrogant, obnoxious Christians who think they're in the holy spiritual camp and everybody else is over here in the fleshly camp. And their lives tend to be marked not by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, but by self-righteousness and anger and judgment, which only marks them out as not actually following Jesus. So Paul offers us a corrective here. He's like, wait a minute. I realize that you could easily now make two lists of people and judge between them and say, well, these people are, are bad and these people are good and I'm with the good people, or these people are sinful and these people are holy. I broke down the sanctuary like that for a reason, okay? Y'all need to, y'all need to examine yourselves. That's not true. Uh, so, you know, he, he looks at us and he says, this would be really easy. So he gives us these instructions afterward. And he says, look, if any of you are caught in sin, if, if, if any of your people are, are falling un, under that list of, of works of the flesh, then you who are spiritual, that is you who don't have those particular weaknesses, you need to restore them gently. That is, we don't turn a blind eye to one another's sin. When we are together in the church, when we are bound together through the gospel of Jesus and through being belonging to him, when we see sin in one another's lives, evident sin and brokenness in one another's lives, we don't just overlook it. That would be unloving. That would be cruel to allow us to continue in our self-destruction, to allow us to continue in our sin. And so we don't just overlook it, but we also don't go and gossip about it. And we don't go judging people. And we don't go putting them down. Paul says, when you see one another failing or falling, not living according to God's standard, you don't gossip. You don't go behind their back. You don't go in judgment to them. You don't go and angrily denounce them. You restore gently. And I love that he uses the word restore here. You don't put down. You don't dehumanize. You don't break down. You don't kick them out. You don't tear them down. You restore. You go to one another in love and you say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I love you. And I've seen this thing. Can we work on that together? This is why we're commanded to confess our sins to one another within the church. Not necessarily to a priest or to a pastor, but to one another. So that we can help carry one another's burdens, as Paul also mentions here. And so this this last portion in chapter 6, what Paul is saying is, look, I didn't give you these lists so that you can break people into categories and judge some and and you can live in your kind of holy huddle and be self-righteous. I'm sharing this with you so that you can bear one another's burdens together. So in love, you can restore one another with gentleness. I'm giving you this so that you can love better, so you can live like Jesus better. I'm giving you this so that you'll be aware enough to live into grace and truth, to graciously bear with one another and love one another despite your faults and your failings, 
But when you see one another falling and failing, to restore gently and to carry your burdens together. And by the way, Paul says, when you're walking around, don't go looking for sin in other people. Don't go looking for faults in other people. Keep your eyes on your own sinfulness. Keep your eye on your own heart. It's only when the sin of another is so obvious you can't ignore it. It's only when it's clearly coming out in the community that you go to them and you gently restore them. But you don't go looking for faults in people. It's a good practice. It's a good principle to always be harder on yourself than you are on other people. Whatever standard I use to judge myself should be stricter than the standard I'm using to look at other people. Always be more gracious with everyone else than yourself. Paul is saying, look, don't go looking for sin. Don't go looking for people's faults. Keep your eye on yourself so that you're not tempted away. Keep your eye on yourself so that you're not going into self-judgment or into self-righteousness and judging others. Keep your eye on yourself so that you're not tempted into sin. One of the things that when I was working in addiction recovery uh, and clients would come to us, one of the very first things I recommended to them always was to find a church to get involved with. And I did this, whether they believed in Christ or not, whether they were Christian or not, I did this for one reason. We were in a treatment program with a bunch of other people facing addiction and in recovery. So everybody had the same temptations. Everybody was tempted by the same stuff. And we need a community of people who are not tempted by the same stuff as us. Because if we're all tempted by the same thing, then when one falls, a whole group of us go out and fall. A whole group of us fail. And so when my clients would come to me and we'd, we'd begin our, our relationship, I would say, look, you need a community of people who are going to love you but don't share your temptations. And the only place I know to find that is in the church. And by the way, here are the three churches I know will love you well and not judge you. That's the way it's to be in the church. A community of people who are not tempted by all the same things, a community of people who don't share all of the same failings, who can gently walk with one another and graciously restore one another when we are tempted to fall. Who keep our eyes on our own sin and the log in our own eye before pointing out the speck in someone else's. Who are willing to walk like Jesus in grace and truth, not denying that there is a standard, helping one another to live according to the standards of Jesus, but graciously bearing with one another's faults and sins as our good and beautiful God has. This is what it means to live a Christ-like life in community together. This is what the cross demonstrates for us. The cross of Jesus is the greatest example of grace wedded to truth that there has ever been. The grace of God that goes to a cross and says, I will allow your brokenness and sin to tear down my body, to break my body so that I can overcome your sin. But the truth that says your sin cannot go unpunished, your sin cannot go overlooked, I cannot merely be permissive, and so I will take the brunt of it. I will take the punishment for your sin. I will bear the burden of the consequences of all the brokenness of humanity in my body, says Jesus and then graciously offer forgiveness to us. This is what it means to live in grace and truth, to bear the sins of one another, to graciously walk toward Christ, to point to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in everything we do, maintaining that our God is a holy God with a holy standard, 
who has once for all forgiven us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate when we come and we take of this bread and this cup. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which means forgiveness for our sins, which displays for us God's grace and judgment, all wrapped up together so that we can be a people who are free, who are loved in Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.